Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 58 and there's much excitement. General Knox catches up with the vet for a second time and all hell breaks loose. Nothing damages you more in war than a lack of proper intelligence gathering. With information that is accurate and dispassionate, you can improve morale, skirmish successfully, offset equipment shortfalls, plan forward, restrict enemy incursions, and avoid pitfalls. Victory is possible. Without proper scouts and proper information, victory is uncertain. So it's the last week of October 1900, and General Christian de Wett has begun to really miss the scouts under command of Dani Teron. Teron had been blown up in a British attack back in September. As I've prepared this series, there have been many characters that have come and gone. Some survived this terrible war, others avoided capture, some succeeded, many died. But no one, dear listener, has been as effective as part of de Wett's commando as this one person. Donny Teron had a relatively small force under his command, between 60 and 80 men. But this organization, as it's known in military terms, was imbued with a remarkable ability. The company could read the landscape and the enemy, and they did it surreptitiously. They could survive for months on end with one meal every three days and water intermittently. They understood the enemy more profoundly than themselves and were able to report unemotionally and with certainty at any time, day or night. It was these men that Christian de Wett missed and in the space of a fortnight almost cost him his life and freedom. Remember I described in episode 56 how General Knox had tracked de Wett and almost captured him as he crossed the Vaal River with his commander. Unfortunately for General de Wett, he is to meet up with General Knox again in this episode and it ends very badly for the Boer commander and all because his scouts failed him. The story starts like this. First, Christian de Wett made his escape from Knox at Skumansdrift on the Vaal River, then hid at Winkeldrift on the Renoste River. But in doing so, he missed the 25th of October meeting with all the other Boer leaders we heard about last week, where Jan Smuts outlined a truly groundbreaking plan to first attack Johannesburg and blow up the gold mines, then split up and launch two attacks into Natal and the Cape Colony. So President Steyn offered to find de Wett and brief him, and the two eventually met at Fentersdorp on the 31st of October 1900. They discussed Jan Smuts' plan to attack the Cape after crippling the gold mines, and de Wett was hesitant about this part of the plan. He trusted no one, not even his own colleagues. But he did support the idea of a Cape and Natal insurgency. Steyn and de Wett then decided to travel together to Boerteville, where most of de Wett's commando awaited. It's a small town to the east of the Vaal River, far south of Johannesburg. This is where things began to unravel for the great Boer commander. He had so far relied on the replacements for the Dani Taron scouts, and those replacements had already led him straight into an ambush, so perhaps his confidence was misplaced, as the same men were scouting ahead and behind him at the end of October and into November. How he was to come to miss his old comrade-in-arms, Dani Taron. The vet writes, we marched on with the intention of crossing the Rewalwe line, somewhere near Winbach. On the morning of the 5th, we arrived in Boerteville, where we found General Frunemann, 
who had been marching with the commander from Renostarafir. Little did we know that a terrible misfortune was awaiting us. Dani Duran had been Devet's eyes and ears. The exploding shell that killed the crack scout at the beginning of September was a terrible loss, and on the morrow they'd miss him all the more. So this joint commando then bedded down and slept overnight at Bourteville. On the morning of the 6th of November, events took a violent turn. At half past six, the sun had risen, but most of his 800 men were still fast asleep. The sentry hurried down from a nearby kopje and reported all was quiet. De Wet thought that the British were about 60 kilometers away, but he knew the British division was being led by the wax-moustached General Knox, whom he now knew was a serious adversary. Even more important, the columns led by the 5th and 8th Mounted Infantry under command of Colonel Philip de Galais were also on his trail, so both Knox and Galais were formidable foes. But de Wet thought that both were still north of the Vaal River. He also thought he'd confused the British and that they were now making for the town of Kroenstadt to the north. He was wrong, and his scouts failed to inform him properly. So the sentry faced De Wet as the sun rose and said, We saw the smoke rising from General Knox's campfires on the other bank of the False River. That's not the Vaal. That river's far closer. He knew that it wasn't 20 kilometers away. It was more like 10. It caused him a moment's confusion. The sentry then returned to the kopje, but seconds later, shots were heard from the hill. The vet thought it was his men slaughtering animals. He says, I heard the report of rifles. I thought at first that it was only some cattle being shot for food, but all at once there were more shots, and what did I see? The English were within 300 paces of us on a little hill near Butterville and close to the spot from whence my outpost had just returned. The English had caught the sentries off guard, something that President Steyn later called criminal negligence. Whatever the charge, the immediate problem was De Wet and the President of the Free State were about to be overrun by the English. It's at times like these that entire worlds can change, that history can be altered. This is how De Wet described the carnage that followed. The scene which ensued was unlike anything I had ever witnessed before. I had heard a good deal about panics. I was now to see one with my own eyes. It was the first time in many retreats where he saw genuine terror in the faces of his own men. They had been so confident and had never been caught like this. Some threw themselves flat behind cover and returned fire, but most panicked and scrambled for their horses, tried to make a break for it, many leaving their saddles behind anything just to get away from the bullets and shells. The vet was powerless to stop them. The only thing I could do was to leap into the saddle and try to persuade the fugitives to return, but I did not succeed, for as I stopped them at one point, others galloped past me, and I was thus kept dodging from point to point until the whole commando was out of the range of the firing. Miraculously, President Steyn's adjutant, called Dupria, had kept his horse, which bizarrely was called Scott, nearby. It was saddled, fed and watered, and tied to a food wagon. President Steyn leapt into the saddle while Dupria gave covering fire. Apparently, the president lost his cufflinks in the escape, but managed to make it to safety along with the state treasury and official documents aboard his wagons. 
On the British side, Lieutenant Colonel Le Gallet and his mounted infantry galloped forward and seized a red farmhouse being used as a defensive shield by the Boers. He had 150 men with him and a field gun, which proceeded to hammer the Boers from point-blank range. The defence from the Boers was extraordinary. At this precise moment, it was one of the most ferocious and gruesome actions of the war. 100 Boers remained behind to repel the British, but there were too few and by mid-morning, after almost five hours of fighting, they surrendered. There is an amazing story of four Boers who fled into a second farmhouse where women and children were taking refuge. The British shelled the structure and scored a direct hit. All four Boers died inside. Miraculously, the women and children survived. And then General Knox, the man with the wax moustache, wavered. William Hickey, Le Gallet's staff officer, was beside himself after they had waited interminably long for General Knox to arrive with reinforcements. The general is an old woman, said Hickey bitterly, and now he'd better go home. If Knox had the same dash as Le Gallet, we should have taken the whole lot, bagged the whole crowd. Hickey would know. He had leapt aboard his horse to try and ride to Knox to ensure reinforcements were on the way, but his horse was shot five times and went down in the dust. So even the grand General Knox had made a fatal error in not following up the La Galais attack immediately. Had he done so, De Wett and Stein would have been prisoners and the Boer War may have altered course. But 17 Boers were dead by the end of this engagement and over a hundred were taken prisoner. On the British side, the terrible dum-dum or hollow-tipped rounds the Boers were using had left horrible injuries. The red farmhouse resembled a butcher's shop. The Boer sharpshooters had picked off the officers. La Galais himself had been hit in the body and blood was seeping from his huge wounds. Lieutenant Colonel Wally Ross had the lower part of his jaw shot away. Major Williams had been hit six times in the body and was convulsed. It was a brutal fight. Hickey was lying nearby and had been forced to take charge as the senior officers were all dead or wounded. Hickey watched them die one by one over the next two hours that he lay near the butcher shop farmhouse, each second ticking by without General Knox's reinforcements and this caused him more fury. Eventually Knox arrived and ordered the men to fix bayonets and to charge the Boers still fighting. The Boers immediately waved a white flag and surrendered. The vet had lost his entire artillery, the four lost Krupp field guns, a pom-pom and weapons captured at Colenso and Sanna's post, a 15-pounder from Colonel Long's battery and a 12-pounder from Broadwood's Q battery. Think about the last two captured weapons. They were seized from the British after two huge defeats the Empire had suffered. Now they'd been won back. It was a symbolic moment. The injuries caused by the dum-dum rounds had infuriated the British troops and they searched prisoners. Having found two Boers carrying this ammunition, which is banned in warfare, they organised a summary execution to be carried out in half an hour. But General Knox refused, saying they would never kill the enemy in cold blood without a proper trial. Then, instead of ordering the remaining men to head off after the Free State President and De Wett, for some reason, Knox ordered the men to loot the Boer wagons. The wagons on the left side of the road are for Delisle's force to loot, and those on the right for La Galais, said Knox. Ironically, shortly thereafter, La Galais succumbed to his wounds and died.
Meanwhile, Christian de Vette was galloping away to safety, yet he was bleak. It was a debacle for him, and he thought of Dani Taron. He knew then that part of his secret weapon, when moving large units around the felt, was his extremely vigilant and brilliant scout, who was no longer alive. As Martin Bossenbroek reminds us in his book The Boer War, only now did de Vette begin to grasp the full implications of his predicament. His entire artillery was now lost to the British. It must have been a shock at that moment to realize there was literally no one he could trust. Sleeping sentries, panic-stricken men, faint-hearted allies, he could only rely on himself. And so it was then that he unilaterally altered the entire Boer plan, which had been carefully plotted by Jan Smuts and the other leaders at the Seferfontein gathering. He then launched an attack into the Natal province without awaiting further orders. Jan Smuts's carefully crafted master plan to smash the Johannesburg gold mines was in a shambles. De Vette had now launched his own war within a war. He could trust no one now and launched his quixotic campaign with or without his colleagues. So it is at this point we must end the podcast. Next week we'll spend some time with the Canadians who are caught in rain and sleet in the eastern Transvaal and then fought a rearguard action in thick mud that could be a description of the Western Front in the First World War. Please remember to rate the podcast on iTunes and you can send me an email through the website abwarpodcast.com or direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. That's D-E-S-L-A-T-H-A-M. Until then, goodbye.